Welcome to the Untribal Podcast, the show that gives you news content by regular people for regular people. Today we're joined by a man that's not afraid to walk the, at times, lonely road of woke and greens. At times he's walking down the line that divides him somewhere in his mind, on the borderline of the edge and where he walks alone. Or at least it may feel that way in Brexit Britain, because this is a place where if you're cautious and alert to discrimination against people, uh, which I believe is uh, what people call woke these days, then you're branded as someone that exclusively eats tofu. If you're someone that doesn't want to see the planet burn before us, you're a raving lunatic that's labelled an extremist, a word we were left only to describe terrorist groups like ISIS in a not-too-distant memory. Any ideas you have, no matter how normal a suggestion they might be and how they would feel in countries across Europe, well, you must be pissed. Or at least have contemplated that idea in some swanky, dim-light, speakeasy wine bar full of up-themselves philosophers. The man joining us today will, of course, disagree, although he would say that. He needs a flashlight to, dis to see anyone that he disagrees with. <laughs> Whether this helps his case as being <laughs> one that was contemplated in a wine bar is obviously up for debate. Without further ado, though, ladies and gents, Ross Greer, how you doing today, Ross? You all right? Very good, very good. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and we'll we'll go straight to that actually. What 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 is this thing with Fergus Ewing? What what's going on? I mean, let's be honest here. Fergus Ewing was someone in Scottish politics. He's now a backbencher who has every right to hold the views that he does. I mean, to me, from the outside, his views seem to be getting further and further away from the views of his own party. But that that's something for the SNP to to deal with. But. You know, the, the Greens got into government for a reason. They got into government to deliver the kind of change that we believe is essential for people on planet. And Fergus has always been on the conservative side of politics. He's not a capital C conservative, but he's absolutely a conservative. He, uh, that I can recall, uh, hasn't ever supported uh, major pieces of equality legislation. You know, didn't support gender recognition reform. Don't believe he supported equal marriage. I don't believe he supported repealing Section 28. I think he abstained on, on that one, or Section 2B as it was in Scotland. So we knew when we got into government, if we were going to deliver the kind of changes that we wanted to see, that we would piss off the kind of people who've been preventing those changes from happening up until now, whether it's, you know, the oil and gas industry or whether it is people like Fergus. And yeah, he's, I think he's struggling to find relevance these days at this point in his career, his, his post-government career. And he's figured the best way to, to do that is by engaging in a, a spat with us. But, you know, fine it can be funny in the chamber sometimes most of the time it's not worth our time we we're focused on actually exercising the power that we've got for the benefit of people and planet fergus wants his you know sound bites at first minister's questions it can crack on because in terms of actually delivering these kind of radical progressive changes fergus isn't standing in our way i'm sure he likes to think that he is i think this kind of change from actually happening and it's funny mentioned FMQs because all we see as members of the public is the theatrics of programs like FMQs, right? And I, I wanted to give people an insight of how it is behind all this. You know, see when you like bump into people in the parliament that you've been relentlessly disagreeing with, like Myrtle Fraser, for example, is someone that always goes in in the Greens for being lunatics. I'm pretty sure that that quote um, that I mentioned earlier in the introduction was from Myrtle Fraser. You know, and, and there's so much tension on on digital platforms, on things like Twitter and stuff. What what's the dynamics in the parliament? Is it awkward? Is it? It's funny because I mean, I 
I'm not interested. So there are there are people in here who I would never go out of my way to be friends with. Certainly, um, I I really don't like this idea that you know your friendships with people should uh, you should friendship should be able to reach across the the political divide and you shouldn't let politics get in the way of it. Well, I'm sorry, but if somebody's political values mean that they don't believe that everybody should have equal rights, if they don't believe in basic um, points of equality, things that I think are essential to to decency in public life. Then I, no, I don't. I don't want to be friends with them. That doesn't mean I go out of my way to be rude to MSPs I disagree with when we're in the queue at the canteen or when we're at the pub around the corner from Parliament or whatever. But I'm not going to be go out of my way to be friends with them either. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think what people see at first ministers questions is definitely the most combative bit of scottish politics it's all theater it's not what most of it actually looks like you know, if you watch a session of a pick any committee in the parliament and uh, 99 times out of 100 those committee sessions might look most of the time pretty dry and boring from the outside they're generally pretty consensual and that's where a lot of the important work of parliament gets done now when i was in opposition the important work of parliament was was all of our job now that we're in government it's part of our job and the other part of it gets done from within the government as, as a separate institution uh, to parliament but yeah i mean that means you're on a committee with folk from every party you're on committees with folk that you don't share fundamental values with not just kind of broad political ideology or party memberships but core differences in, in values but i was talking about this with a couple of green colleagues last night or saying you know there are some folk who enjoy revel in being absolute dicks in the chamber and being absolute dicks on Twitter and you know saying horrible stuff bigoted stuff in a lot of cases but then think we can be dead chummy when we're speaking to each other in the corridors or we can be you know dead chummy in the canteen or at the bar or or, or even in committees or whatever and I'm not interested in that either like I'm, I'll be perfectly civil with folk but sorry if if you're being a dick in the chamber and you're being a dick on Twitter and you hold bigoted views I don't want to be friends with you. I've, I I don't lack for friends in my life. I'm very fortunate in that regard. So I'm not going to go out my way to be pally with, with these kind of people. So yeah, I mean, sometimes that'll mean there's folk who you'd stand beside in the queue in the canteen and you'd strike up a conversation with them, even though you're in different parties. That happens all the time. There's other folks I will stand in the queue of the canteen. I won't stand there and argue with them. I won't pick a fight with them. I'm not going to bother talking <laughs> to them at all because why would I? We, we have fundamentally different worldviews and I find them to be deeply unpleasant. Uh, it's interesting that you, that you mentioned that FMQs is the most combative part of Scottish politics and you mentioned the sort of debates that people have on Twitter. But, you know, these are the things that strike such big divides in, in amongst the general public. And I think people will almost feel a wee bit disheartened by that two-faced attitude towards politics where they thrive in these um, sessions like FMQs and they, they, they throw about their combative side and then by enclosed doors are very friendly to these people because... They're actually soaking up quite, quite serious division amongst the general public in doing so. Jake, there's been a bit of a lack of duty of care in politicians in recent years in terms of that. I think some people are definitely keen to stoke up that division because it's electorally rewarding for them, and the culture war they think is a way to to get votes and like constantly raising the temperature and raising the rhetoric is is a way for them to to get votes, and that's sad. Um, I, I balance that out though by saying like. One one element of criticism that we politicians get from the public is why can't you all just get along? What why can't you all just sit in a room and agree? That's because we do actually have fundamental differences in our views, differences in our values. And in a democracy, it's the public's job to decide 
whose values get to be delivered through government. Now, some stuff we can all agree on, and you know, plenty of pieces of legislation are passed unanimously, and it's usually amendment-specific measures that are the more contentious stuff. I think it is important that the public see us having like significant substantive debates on those differences in our values, on those big political differences in, in our approach and our ideologies. But um, there's a big difference between that and people simply using an issue that I think they personally couldn't give two shits about to stir up political division because they see it as a way to bash their opponents and, and take advantage of what they perceive to be as a weakness um, or to simply shore up support, particularly you definitely see that from parties who are, let's be honest, you see that from the Tories because whether it's in Scotland or UK wide, uh, the Tories are really, really struggling. They're way down in the polls and Tories usually win, certainly UK wide, Tories win elections uh, in large part because of a perception of economic competence. Clearly, that's not something that's available to them at the moment. They're the ones who broke the economy last year under less trust, but long term, they've turned our economy into an incredibly unproductive one compared to, to most others. So the Tories have embarked on a very obvious strategy of stoking up these culture wars because they think that's a way to shore up their support. It's not a way to grow their support base. Certainly in Scotland, the Tories aren't, you know, they're not playing to get above that 20 to 25% range. They're not playing to actually be in with a serious chance of forming a government in Scotland. They're just trying to hold on to what they've got. And they think that a way to do that is to double down on the culture war stuff, because unfortunately, there is an audience for that. It's a small audience for it. But if your objective isn't growing your party's voter base, if your objective is just holding on to as much of it as you can when so much of it is deserting you, then if you're somebody who lacks decency, who lacks uh, good political values, then it probably does look pretty attractive to you to stoke up the culture war stuff because it's a way to get people really, really riled up, often by completely misrepresenting the issue at hand, which is exactly what we saw with, with gender recognition reform. I, can, I, I picked up on something you said in there, why can't we all agree? I'll answer that question for you because there's a big, massive, glaring elephant in the room that's independence. And the reason that we can't agree on things is because people are tiptoed around this constitutional issue. And I, I think we've, it's as a result, you know, it's um, policies on the NHS are politicised, policies such as the, the DRS scheme, the deposit return scheme that's meant to help the environment, that's been politicised as well. You know, I, I, do you not think that? It's this one constitutional issue that's getting in the way of genuine progressive policies being passed through the Scottish Parliament. I think that's absolutely the issue with uh, Labour. And if you consider the Lib Dems to be left of centre or progressive, I wouldn't describe them as a left of centre party, but certainly on social issues, they're, they're a progressive party. But yeah, the, the thing that holds Labour and the Lib Dems back from working with ourselves in the SNP is the constitutional question, because there are other issues that we can broadly agree on. And on a lot of issues, the SNP and Labour should be closer to each other than the SNP are to us. We are an explicitly anti-capitalist, eco-socialist party. We are a party of the radical left. We acknowledge that we're not going to overthrow capitalism with the powers of a devolved government, especially as the junior party in that government, but we're trying to deliver as much of that agenda as we can. We can coexist with the SNP, and it's not just because we both agree on independence. It's because we recognise the value of working together to achieve an objective. We're often... It's not a binary issue of we we believe in A, they believe in B. Often it's about how far do you go on these issues. So climate, tax policy, stuff like that. We go on to go much further than them, but we're all broadly pointed in the same direction. Labour should be with us on a lot of that stuff. And there's two reasons why 
they're not. And one is, is exactly as you say, it's a constitutional question and it's ridiculous. I think the Lib Dems were probably the worst culprits of this a couple of years ago. Usually it's a waiver, but for this example, the Lib Dems genuinely said that uh, they would negotiate with the SNP on the budget. This was when the SNP were a minority government. They would negotiate with the SNP on the budget if the SNP dropped their support for independence. Why would the SNP do that? They're the reason it's the reason that they exist. Like, would you say to a liberal government, "Oh, we, we'll negotiate with you if you drop your liberalism"? But it's it's just such a nonsense notion, especially because the budget at that point had absolutely nothing to do with independence. There was no plans for a referendum that year. It was 2018, 2019, or whatever. That's absolutely the case for Labour as well. Uh, the, the constitutional issue is driving a lot of unnecessary opposition um, that not everybody in Labour is happy with. Remember, um, Alec Rowley, I think he was their deputy leader at this point, but he was certainly their local government spokesperson, did try and negotiate with the Scottish government, did try and come up with some constructive proposals for the budget, and he got reprimanded for, uh, by his party for doing that because they had no intention of ever voting for the budget. Um, the other issue that we've got with Labour and why Labour won't work with us, with the Greens and the SNP, is uh, because UK Labour's policy positions are so far to the right of ours that it would compromise, they think it would compromise their electoral strategy in England. Certainly that's my belief anyway. You know, we are delivering tax policies here in Scotland that the U UK Labour categorically, Keir Starmer has categorically ruled out for England if he wins the next UK election. So we were in a position where the tax policies that we, we just passed there for this year, we raised income tax on, on high earners. We raised the additional dwelling supplement, which is a, an extra tax you pay if it's a second home or a holiday home or whatever. So again, on, on wealthy people, wealthy enough to, to buy a holiday home. And Labour, Labour's contribution to that debate left me completely unclear on whether they thought we had gone too far or not far enough. And the reality is because they're not allowed to have tax policy. Like UK Labour won't let Scottish Labour come up with clear policies on issues of tax, on issues of social security, etc., if they think that's going to compromise their ability to win over Tory voters in England. So you've got this combination of the constitutional uh, divide, which does not need to divide us on all these issues of domestic policy. It's a very important debate to have, but shouldn't divide us on issues of domestic policy. Um, but you've then also got the reality that Ultimately, Scottish Labour is not in charge of setting its own policy. UK Labour is, and UK Labour aren't interested in winning elections in Scotland. They are interested in their idea of a very particular kind of Tory voter in England. And a lot of the stuff that we're doing is way to the left of uh, what they will deliver in U government at UK level, because they're clearly planning a centre-right government. And I think for that reason, they, they don't want to work with us either, because they don't want it thrown back at them by the Tories in a general election. Well, Labour and Lib Dem would probably come back to what you're saying and argue, how can a Green Party like yourself be so fixated on nationalism? For example, um, I, I think it was a, a year or two ago, the Greens were committed to the de facto referendum plans that were outlined by Nicola Sturgeon. So that would mean committing um, their whole general election manifesto to one single policy, i.e. delivering independence. So Lib Dem and, Lib Dem and Labour would say, well, you can talk. You know, you're you're so fixated on nationalism, and we don't know a green party anywhere else in the world that would be. Yeah, I mean, on on the second part, they're categorically incorrect on that because there are green parties. You know, French Polynesia, not Scotland, but really interesting place at the moment. Pro independence parties, including the Greens, are advancing in French Polynesia. So the idea that no green party anywhere else in the world supports constitutional changes is just wrong. That's not the salient point there. Uh, the salient point, though, is this idea the uh, green support for independence is at the expense of the other stuff we believe in. No, our proposal for a, a general election as a de facto referendum strategy was and is 
um, that we would put forward a manifesto for our vision of an independent Scotland, not a one-line manifesto saying vote green equals vote independence. It would be about what that green vision of independence actually looks like. So it, it would be a detailed policy prospectus in the same way that at a general election, we put forward a manifesto about powers, what we would do with powers that are currently reserved. Well, obviously, in the event of independence, the whole point is the reserve powers come here. So it's most of the same policies. It would just we'd be writing it in the context of what we would do with the government of an independent Scotland, rather than what we would do if we elect Green MPs to Westminster. So it's not about saying that we believe in independence and we're deprioritizing climate action instead of that. No, no, no. Our vision of independence is about saying things like, in an independent Scotland, we will have control over our territorial waters rather than Westminster. And clearly, what Greens would be fighting for for the government of an independent Scotland is categorically ruling out any new licenses for oil and gas in the North Sea. That's something we can't do now. That's something that's core to our vision of independence. It's core to our uh, understanding of how humans can continue to survive on this planet. We have a really exciting, really radical, really progressive vision for what Scotland can be, where we put people and planet first rather than put the profit of big corporations first. And that's ultimately what Labour in particular are, are scared of, because they're not offering that kind of change. The Greens are offering that kind of change. But we recognise that ultimately most of that can only come if Scotland has the powers of a normal country, if we have the powers of independence. But fundamentally, we also believe in democracy. We believe that the people of Scotland should get what they vote for. And when we debated this issue a couple of months ago, one of my colleagues in the Labour Party, Michael Mara, was giving this grand speech about what Labour were going to offer at the next general election. And I intervened on him and said, I respect the fact that in a democracy, if the Labour Party wins the next UK general election, they will have a mandate to deliver the kind of lukewarm, underwhelming constitutional reform that Michael Mara is laying out here. Why does Mr Mara think that if the people of Scotland vote for the constitutional policies put forward by the Greens and the SNP, they don't have a right to get that. Labour's position is fundamentally anti-democratic. We, we expect that from the Tories, right? They don't really respect democracy. They've introduced new voter ID laws to suppress voter uh, turnout in England and probably here at the next UK election. They introduced the public order bill to uh, stop political protest. Labour won't reverse that. But the Labour Party are genuinely arguing that voters should have a right to vote for Labour's constitutional proposals but not for anybody else's. That's not democracy. That's them telling the public, here's what you're allowed to have. You're not allowed to have anything else. Even if you pick one of these other options, sorry, but we think you were being stupid and we're not going to let you have it. That's the tension that they've got. And you know, it's why Labour are really struggling to get the kind of traction in Scotland that you would expect them to have, given how high they're polling UK-wide at the moment. It's because fundamentally, they're not a party that respects Scottish democracy. We're a party that you can vote for, with faith that that's going to deliver genuine equal socialism it's going to deliver redistribution of wealth and power from the elites who have too much of it to the many who need much more of it and we also fundamentally respect democracy we believe that people should get what they vote for unfortunately that puts the greens in a relatively unique place the SNP also respect democracy they're not a socialist party obviously uh, the labor party aren't proposing socialism but they're also not proposing democracy I, I, yeah, I, I noticed that you said with quite a, a sense of pride that you're 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 holding sort of corporate greed to account. You didn't use those words. The words you used uh, again with a sense of pride that the, the Greens are anti-capitalist. Um, but one of the first uh, big policies that was introduced by the SNP Greens government was the Scotland project. Why was that privatised? So there's a couple of reasons for that. The, the 
short version is because we, we don't have the power to uh, do this under public control in Scotland. That is ultimately reserved. Um, now, most of Scotland, most of the Scotland process had been done before the G Greens joined the government. So we came in at the end of that process. That being said, I would absolutely still defend it because the criticism that came from the left was that we you're giving away the seabed to these private companies. They were going to profit from this massive offshore renewable development when we could have done it uh, through public ownership. That's going to require about something in the region of £25 billion worth of infrastructure investment to set up those offshore wind farms. The Scottish government doesn't have capital borrowing powers. We literally don't have the money to do that. So we, we don't have the money to set up a 25 gigawatt offshore uh, wind farm. I mean, that's colossal. 25 gigawatts is uh, a number of times our maximum domestic demand for the whole of Scotland's electricity supply. So we literally don't have the money to do it. Um, but this point around public energy companies, again, we absolutely believe that we should have a publicly owned, publicly operated energy company or companies plural if you're separating out generation from supply. And again, on the supply side, we could set up a publicly owned energy supply retail company. We'd still, that retail company would still have to get the energy from the, the generators that we, uh, we've just explained why we can't set that up. So you're still going to get it from your BPs, shells, whoever it is that's operating uh, the energy generation. And we then face a choice of either we can sell it to people at market rates, so we're not actually helping people reduce their energy bills, or we can subsidise it, which would require us taking money from somewhere else in the Scottish government's fixed budgets. We'd have to cut something else to do it. And what you've done at that point is you've created a very roundabout, very inefficient social security payment when you could have just paid people social security in the first place. And that's what we're doing through the Scottish child payment through winter uh, heating payments, through the adult disability payment, the child disability payment, et cetera, we are just putting money in people's pockets. So as Greens, we absolutely believe that energy uh, is a public utility. It should be under public ownership. There shouldn't be profit involved in that. But regulation of the energy market and capital borrowing powers are both reserved to the UK government. We don't have the power to deliver that under devolution in the same way that we don't have powers over foreign affairs or defence. We don't have the power to change corporation tax. So the idea that the Scottish government was being criticised for not doing that, to me, it just felt bizarre because it wasn't reflecting what the Scottish government does and does not have the power to do. So all that being said, as much as, yeah, I would rather it was a public company than these private ones, Scotland is still a massive economic opportunity for this country. It's essential for meeting our climate targets. It's about a massive expansion in the amount of electricity we generate from renewables. That electricity would not just meet our own needs, but that can be uh, sold to the rest of the UK. We need to build interconnectors to sell it to, to mainland Europe to help with the continents transition away from fossil fuels. It's also an opportunity to reindustrialize Scotland. The industries that were lost under Tory and Labour UK governments, particularly in my region in the west of Scotland, nothing replaced those. I represent communities that were devastated in the 70s and 80s and that have not seen economic regeneration since. We will have that opportunity through Scotland and through other projects like it to bring that kind of manufacturing uh, work base back to this country, to build the supply chain, the maintenance, et cetera, back to this country. That's tens of thousands of really high quality jobs. And part of what the Greens are doing in government is about making sure that we're setting as high standards as we can within the limited powers we've got. So employment law is not uh, devolved, but we're looking at, well, what ways can we make sure that the companies involved in these supply chains recognize trade unions, that they're paying at least the real living wage, that they're not using zero hours contracts, et cetera. We are pushing right on the edge of what devolution allows us to do. And yeah, 
I want us to go much further. So when other people on the left are saying this should be under public ownership, of course it should be. But criticizing a government that doesn't have the power to bring all of this under public ownership feels really misplaced. There are things the left can criticize the Scottish government for. I would definitely appreciate if more of the left-wing criticism of us, uh, of the government my party is part of, was focused on issues that the government actually has control over. Because that external left-wing pressure is really useful to those of us on the inside, trying to move it as far to the left as possible. It's very easy for my colleagues who don't share my view of the world to dismiss that kind of criticism if it's just based on somebody having not read the Scotland Act. Yeah, but I'd, I'd, I wonder if we were to become independent, would we be able to reverse that decision? And like, have we not just seen a repeat of history where we sold off all the oil back in the back in the seventies and eighties? Yeah, because we've not sold it. These are leases, so um, oh, right, okay. these are leases, and that's why we we will get recurring income from them. So for a start, there, there is a return to the public purse here because we get the the money from the lease. It's the leasing the seabed. Uh, but yeah, um, because it's a lease, the the leases can be broken. They're not in perpetuity. They're not fifty year leases or anything like that. Uh, so yeah, if and when we become independent, it should absolutely be one of our priorities to move as much of this as quickly as we, we can into public ownership to set up a public generation company uh, and public energy retail. And how's it been working with the SNP? Any issues? Any fallouts? It's really interesting because you know sometimes we, we joke about it when we're trying to come up with particularly you know shared economic policy or whatever. Um, when we say, oh well, uh, say to colleagues in the SNP maybe pushing back a little bit on some of our, our ideas. Like, you were the ones who invited a bunch of anti-capitalist radicals into government. You, you knew what you were doing. Um, and it, it's about um, balancing that out. And I, I think that, you know, it, it would undoubtedly be harder if we were independent because the big issues that our parties really disagree on, the reality is most of them are just reserved at the moment. Um, there would be definitely more tension and more conflict. And there will be more tension and conflict. So I'm optimistic, obviously, about us achieving independence. And I think our two parties... Uh, will play the key role in that and are likely to form governments post-independence together. But yeah, that'll be more difficult. Um, but together, you know, we have been able to push and the SNP um, have allowed us to push them. Their party has been in government for a long time. We've not. And not to say that you know they've not got any ideas or anything like that. They had a manifesto full of them. But we're able to inject into the government a new energy, new ideas, new perspective. And I think our SNP colleagues really, really value that, even where they might not agree with us on every single issue. We are improving the quality of the internal conversation. We're providing internal challenge, and they're able to challenge us when we put forward ideas on the table. And last year's budget, or the budget we passed earlier this year for the current financial year, is a good example of that. It was myself and John Swinney who worked together on uh, that. And what we did in that budget was cement Scotland's position as having the most progressive tax system anywhere in the UK. As mentioned earlier, we raised income tax on the highest earners on the higher and additional rates. We lowered the additional rate threshold from 150 grand to 125. Um, and we also raised the additional dwelling supplement on buying second or, or, or holiday homes. That Those were fundamentally green proposals. I've been pushing really, really hard for that. Of course, there are other tax changes that I would like to make. So I, I want to replace the, um, got, got various names, but the air departure tax or the um, whatever variation of it you use. I want to replace the air departure tax with a frequent flyer levy um, because I want to discourage particularly regular business domestic flights within the UK. I want more progressive tax policy in that area. I think there's more we can do with non-domestic rates. I think that we should change the land and buildings transaction tax to add a surcharge if an overseas entity is trying to buy property in Scotland. So there's lots of bold tax policies that I want. But myself and John Swinney were able to work together 
coming from different economic philosophies. John, I think, would say that he's, he's certainly a capitalist um, and he's a social democrat, and I'm not a social democrat, I'm to the left of that. We were able to come together to agree a set of tax policies that raised half a billion, more than half a billion pounds more for our public services, as well as making sure that, that we were, as a result, funding all those key interventions like the first full year of the Scottish child payment, £25 a week into the pockets of these families. And there's tension sometimes, but the tension isn't um, personal. That's one thing that I think a lot of journalists have gotten really frustrated about. If you compare our government to the Labour Liberal executive in the first eight years of devolution, they were briefing against each other in the press all the time. Like cabinet meetings were practically being leaked live. If they were doing that now in the era of Twitter, they would be getting leaked live and you could follow Paul Hutchin at the Daily Record to see what the cabinet was discussing. Uh, they used to leak immediately after that. Um, we don't do that. So we, we do have naturally disagreements over policy and things like that, but it doesn't, it's not translating into personal fallouts and it's not making its way into the press. And that allows our government to function in a much more productive way, which we think is, is what the public expect of us. Because I noticed the wee smirk when I said uh, when I said the word fallout, so I was wondering if you could give us the goss, but clearly not. No, I mean, genuinely, hand on heart, there is not a single SNP minister or special advisor that I have fallen out with in the, the last two years, and I'm not aware of, of any of my other colleagues doing the same. The, there are points where we rub up against each other and, and disagree, because we've got different views of the world. Um, but we've so far been able to, to navigate all that and to navigate it in a way that's delivered, I think, a certainly the most left-wing, the most progressive programme for government that Scotland has, has ever seen. That's not to say we can't go further. My job is to make sure we go further. But where we are now is more progressive than we've ever been before. I was going to ask you, um, you know, sort of two questions that probably coincide with what your answer is going to be. Firstly, how, how have you sort of navigated the disruption to the SNP in recent weeks and the sort of revelation of how broad a church it is um, as a party. And secondly, if it wasn't for the Greens, what would our government in Scotland look like just now? What what would kind of policies would there be absent of your involvement? The SNP's internal issues are, you know, significant and are primarily for, for them to, to comment on. I think it's fair to ask us what effect they have in, in relation to the government. Um, it, what's happening to the SNP at the moment is fundamentally a party crisis, not a government crisis, which means that you know, we're we are not involved in that. Um, but it creates political turbulence for them um, and uh, that obviously can potentially have an effect on, on the government. What we see our role as being here and the way we can help the government is about uh, generating and then delivering a really progressive prospectus program for government that materially helps people and planet, right? We can't do anything to resolve the internal issues that the SNP are facing as a party. What we can do is convince the public that the Scottish government is delivering for them. It's delivering what they actually need under really, really difficult circumstances. So that's what the Greens are, are focused on at the moment, I really, really feel for colleagues in the SNP. I really feel for the, uh, my friends in the SNP who've given their entire lives to that party and are going through what is undoubtedly the most difficult period right now. I can't fix that as an internal issue for them, but I can make sure I can uh, contribute to the government delivering as much as it can. It's an interesting hypothetical. What would the Scottish government be doing or what would it not be doing right now uh, if the Greens weren't in it, if it was another SNP minority government? And I think you know what I point towards are things like 
gender recognition reform, it was really, really important to us that we included 16 and 17 year olds uh, in that because we know the impact of the hostile culture that we live in uh, is having on trans young people. We know uh, like the mental health statistics for trans teenagers. We, we know from the lived experience of so many people have spoken to us how important it is at that critical age to have that option of being able to get your gender legally changed. That was important to us. Would that have still been in the bill if the Greens weren't in government? I genuinely don't know. I genuinely don't know. Um, but other measures like the emergency rent freeze and the evictions ban, you know, that was taken forward by a Green Minister, the first ever bill anywhere in the UK taken forward and delivered by a Green Minister. Um, I absolutely need to credit Nicola Sturgeon for this because as First Minister, she was determined that that would happen, that would go ahead. That was a major political priority for us. I don't know if that would have actually happened without us. Same with the tax changes that I've just mentioned. I don't know if they would have happened or, or at least gone as far without us. I can't say for definite. No, no, none of this stuff would have happened. But some of the measures that the government is bringing forward right now are from the Green Manifesto, not the SNP Manifesto. So, for example, we're mitigating the Tories' benefit cap. So that's, uh, I think, about 4,000 of the most vulnerable families in Scotland who are being affected by the benefit cap. We're now mitigating that for them. Again, that's spending Scottish government money just mitigating the damage the UK government's doing. It's frustrating, but it's necessary. Mitigation of the benefit cap was in the Green Manifesto, but not the SNP Manifesto. And that's something that we put into the Child Poverty Action Plan. And there's a long list of, of items like that. The massive increase in active travel, so walking, wheeling and cycling funding, the Nature Restoration Fund. These are fundamentally green ideas, green initiatives that we either secured the commitment to but are now being delivered by an SNP minister we were the ones who put them in the program for government or the budget or whatever or they're being delivered directly by green ministers mm. I, I, I've always been so impressed with your knowledge retention uh, Ross and your ability to portray your argument it's actually it's quite fascinating to sit and listen to you to be honest with you I'm wondering how do you switch off what, what, what are you up to this weekend uh, I don't know if I switched off in 10 years <laughs> Because uh, it all, I mean, it, this all really kick-started for me when the referendum started in 2012 and then elected in 2016. I certainly don't think I've, I've switched off uh, since then. I mean, uh, so last weekend, to avoid the coronation, uh, I thought I definitely need to switch off for a day. Uh, conveniently, uh, one of my close friends who, who works in our team here in Parliament was uh, was moving. So we, we spent the day uh, just doing some manual labour, dragging boxes and furniture and things up and down tenement courses in Glasgow. So that was a really good way to, to switch off. Um, and there's... Uh, a, a group of us, my kind of group of friends within the party, some of whom work for the, the party or in parliament and others uh, don't. Unsurprisingly, I'm sure to a lot of people uh, listening, we are huge nerds. Uh, so we play uh, <laughs> uh, Apex Legends and things like that. That's a game right, okay. duos or trios. So we try and do stuff like that to switch off, but um, we don't switch off nearly as much as we should. You know, particularly, you know, you play a game like that to switch off from the stress of a, another difficult week in politics and then you spend the whole 20 minute game the three of you all being people involved in politics talking about politics to each other while you're playing it so we're probably not nearly as good at switching off as we should be um but i you know the the, the pious answer to that is it's because we really do care about this stuff like we are so motivated to deliver this agenda because we genuinely think it helps people like I joined this party when there were 900 people in it. I was 15. There's no prospect of a career of this being my job. I joined the Greens because I believe in the Greens' view of the, the world and I believe in the urgency of the changes that, that we need to deliver. And yeah, that means that um, there are plenty of Saturdays and Sundays where I'm working. There's plenty of late night and early morning, uh, morning phone calls and stuff like that. 
But it's because right now, we have the most amazing privilege, the most amazing opportunity of being in government and able to actually deliver some of this stuff. And we have a moral obligation to do it because, you know, as the IPCC and others are saying, the planet's heading towards its tipping point. We've got less than 10 years left before that tipping point. I'll, you know, if, if I make it that far, I'll, I'll rest and properly switch off then. I noticed I just asked you a question about switching off and then you went on a tangent about <laughs> the, yeah. the green policy. I mean, yeah. no, fair enough. It, it, it's your passion. And do you know what? You can't uh, criticise the Greens off. Oh, it is passion. I, I, I see that in all of you. I, I seen that in, in Lorna Slater, who was the first ever guest on the Untribal podcast. Uh, there is a real, as you said, urgency and, and passion about what you're talking about. So thank you for that. Listen, Ross, thank you very much for joining us today. Is there anything else that you want to say to our listeners before we go? I think I've done that classic politician thing of talking plenty already. So I'm sure folk wouldn't mind if I round it off here. <laughs> Cheers, Ross. Thanks.